I feel like government functions are important. Uh, government has a role in the lives of the people in this country, and we need to take that seriously. And I certainly, certainly will always have that voice at the table of somebody who has struggled, lived paycheck to paycheck, um, right. and, and been underrepresented on top of everything. Right, right. I mean, I'm one of the first two Native women uh, in over 200 years that Congress has been an institution. Hello, it's Kim and Allie from Vote Like a Girl, back with another edition of our podcast, Girl Talk Live, ordinary women navigating an extraordinary time with candid, impassioned political conversation. This week, we were honored to have a few minutes with Representative Deb Holland of New Mexico. Stay with us till the end. She's got an important message for all of us. Hi, this is Allie here with Kim, and we are here with Representative Deb Holland of New Mexico's first congressional district, which includes much of Albuquerque, Sandia Pueblo, and the Pueblo of Laguna. We're thrilled to have the opportunity to be able to chat with you today. I'm especially thrilled as someone who was born in Albuquerque and still has family here, including my 94-year-old grandmother. <laughs> So let's get started. Representative Holland, as you know, yesterday was National Indigenous Day. As one of the first two Native Americans elected to the House, can you share with us what motivated you to want to serve in public office? Well, um, I mean, one of, one of the main things was that, um, uh, well, first of all, let me back up a minute. I started out as a phone volunteer because I wanted more Indians to get out and vote. And so um, that motivated me to get involved in um, party politics uh, because the Democrats, uh, uh, the candidates I always chose were Democrats. Um, and so I'd go in, I'd walk into campaign offices and ask for lists of Native Americans. And um, then I'd sit down and just call them. And I, I felt like Native Americans should have a say in who our elected officials are. Mm -hmm. So um, so that was that, and I did that for a long time. And then um, I got a little more involved. Eventually, um, uh, I became the uh, state Native American vote director for the Obama campaign. Now, mind, I volunteered a lot before I even got you know this staff position on the Obama 2012 reelection campaign. Um, I, that was the hardest I ever worked in my life. Wow. And I, I, that race was over and I felt invincible in some way, right? Like oh, I worked, great. I, worked I just really changed hard. the world. <laughs> exactly. And like I stayed up till two in the morning, almost every morning working and I got up at 6 a.m. And I was, you know, it, it was just like, I was on a mission and I thought um, that, you know, I felt empowered in a way mm -hmm. and, um, so then after that, I ran for lieutenant governor because it was a terrible year for Democrats in 2014. And I just felt like um, we, needed a, we needed a candidate for lieutenant governor. That was me. Uh, <laughs> I would have been the first statewide Native American to win office, except for we lost. Uh, so then, <laughs> so then um, I felt like, yes, we lost because it was a terrible year for Democrats. We lost our state house. We lost the governor's race. It was, you know, it was just a big bummer all the way around. Um, I then uh, said, uh, we need somebody to lead our party. 
I've been on the ground for such a long time, I felt like I knew what our party needed. And so I ran for state party chair and won that. And, um, and in New Mexico, even though, you know, nationwide, right, you started your organization because of what happened in 2016, when uh, the, or this president got elected. Um, 2016, New Mexico did really well. We won back our state house. We won statewide elections. Hillary won by eight points in our state. Um, and that was because I felt I was dedicated and I had a team that was dedicated to winning. And so, so then um, the, my predecessor decided to run for governor, left the seat open. I realized there had never been a native woman in Congress and why not me? Oh, so, awesome. <laughs> so I, but look, the first, you know, some people, they, they run for various reasons. The first question I asked myself was, can I win? Right. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to run a race, run a, um, a race. If, if other folks, if, you know, people who I had worked with on cam campaigns right. for a long time felt that I couldn't win. I got a group of folks together. Can I win? And they were like, heck yeah, we can win. And so, <laughs> So the rest is history. And they caved if you don't win. I love it. I love it. And so, well, my next question, and I think you're answering it. I'm the daughter of a single mom. Mm -hmm. And I know how much tenacity I, I, wrote, I wrote down strong stock. Take strong stock to be a... So I'm wondering how your experience as a single mom has informed your politics and, and maybe given you that, that stamina and tenacity to push forward. Yes, and I think stamina and tenacity is one thing. And look, I, I have one daughter. I Single moms with four kids, three kids, two kids, seven mm -hmm. kids. Uh, you know, my next door neighbor um, I, that I used to have, Mrs. Lopez, her husband died when she was, when, uh, like, she was still pregnant with her last child. Her husband died. So she raised... I think five children on her own as a wow. teacher. Wow. And yeah, yeah, so I've always felt like I, I've held, you know, her in such high esteem. Uh, and I know there's, you know, millions of moms just like her who, who they are, you know, dedicated to ensuring that they raise their children in a, you know, just, a, you know, the best way possible. And so um, I, with one child, um, I realized that I didn't have it as hard as some people, right? It's a struggle for some people, but I, did, but I do know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. uh, my daughter and I never went on vacation. We never, uh, she never got new clothes. It was shopping at the thrift store or garage sales or hand-me-downs. Um, she jokes that, uh, you know, I used to dress her in, my sister's kids, they were all boys, um, would give her, my daughter, her hand-me-downs, so she looked like a little boy. And so uh, she jokes about, um, no wonder I'm gay now because of the way you dress me when I was little. <laughs> uh, I mean, you do what you have to, right? To right, right. get by. And if you have a choice between brand new clothes and food, I think you're going to take the food over that. So I just feel like in Congress, I know what that's like. Right. I know what it's like to struggle. And I, I really feel like it's, uh, it's, our, it's the government's obligation to, to, to make the lives of its citizens better. 
right? right? I mean, we often think about, yes, we want good roads to travel on. We don't want to, you know, th these are all a government function. We don't want to cross a bridge that has been neglected for 20 years. Right. The same with the same, you know, idea. Um, everyone should have health, be able to go to a doctor when they're sick. Mm -hmm. Nobody should be starving in our country, right? Right. Um, so I feel like government functions are important. Uh, government has a role in the lives of the people in this country, and we need to take that seriously. And I certainly, certainly will always have that voice at the table of somebody who has struggled, live paycheck to paycheck, um, right. And been underrepresented on top of everything. Right, right. I mean, I'm one of the first two Native women uh, in over 200 years that Congress has been an institution. So, um, so there's that as well. It's an important, critical, critical perspective. Needs to be at the table. Glad your voice is there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. All right, after watching a recent debate between you and your opponent, one of the most stark contrasts seemed to be your difference in approach on how to make communities safer. Can you speak a bit about what you think needs to happen in terms of criminal justice and immigration reforms and how these reforms will not only work to create fair and equitable policies, but also make communities safer? Right, well, I guess as we've, as we've seen in recent months, um, the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and many others going back years and years. Um, it is um, people of color, mostly black folks, but also other people of color have been targets of police brutality. Uh, they have died at the hands of police more often than any other group of people. And um, I feel like, I mean, it's police play a role, which I think is public safety. Mm -hmm. And there are groups of people in this country who do not feel safe around police. Mm -hmm. And um, so that needs to absolutely change. I think um, that crime is, yes, crime is, um, we, we have an obligation to, make people feel safe, right? Um, I know this probably better than most. I work on missing and murdered indigenous women uh, where native women are 10 times more likely to meet their deaths at the hands of their rapists and other folks than any other group of women. So I understand this, I, but it's all encompassing. And, and I, I don't think racial profiling is a way to achieve that. And I also feel like police need to be held accountable when they break the law as much as anyone else does. So how do we restructure or, or I guess redefine what police should be doing? Uh, it's, it's paying attention to the budgets that they have. Um, can Congress, you know, move funding into police uh, departments to uh, bolster their social services workforce or um, make sure that every policeman has a body cam uh, and there's no excuses, right? That protects them uh, from liability to make sure that they are doing everything by the law and not targeting people because of their race. 
Um, I mean, there, there are so many ways that we can address this issue. I think we did a good, we made a good start with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, ban, you know, it banned chokeholds, no-knock warrants. Um, I mean, these are things that we need to continue to, to speak of. Um, and I'll just say one last thing here in, in Albuquerque, which is the largest city in my district, um, the Albuquerque Police Department has um, started the ECHO program. The ECHO program is generally a community policing model that, and I've walked the beat with Albuquerque police um, officers um, where they are, you know, they're walking, they know, they get to know people on a personal basis, they connect them with the services they need. Not everything is about crime, not everything is about throwing people in jail. And so um, I support those ways of, of turning the tables. Uh, there's also one more piece in, in that um, Justice and Policing Act that, um, you know, if you're a police officer who breaks the law by t racially profiling someone or, or killing or assaulting somebody unjustly, uh, your record will follow you. And, and I think we, we need to, um, you know, there were, there were uh, one of my cousins, he, when he was young, he wanted, he wanted to be a policeman when he grew up, right? From the time he was a little boy, that's what he wanted to do. I, I, want, I want that to be an honorable profession. I don't want people to be afraid of police. I don't, I don't want our kids growing up to think those people killed my father. Right. Those people killed, you know, my auntie or my cousin or whatever it is. We, we, we just need to turn that around. I think that also speaks a little bit to um, Democrats sometimes having messaging problems. So the, the defund the police is such an easy thing to latch onto and, and turn it into something it isn't. It would be nice mm -hmm. if we could rephrase that into, you know, um, restructuring the funding of police. Mm -hmm. and right Yes, now. and for the record, I've never said to defund the police. I don't think that's the answer. We can't right. defund the police. I mean, there's the police, the police or they play a valuable role in our society. We, we just need to restructure. We need yeah. to protect them and, you know, other people. Um, you know, after George Floyd died even, I or was murdered. Um, I read an article about the American Indian movement was started in that same city in Minneapolis because of police brutality toward urban Indians in that city. You know, they'd arrest, they'd arrest native folks on the street, throw them in the back of the trunk and close the lid and drive them to the police station, right? Wow. They, they were suffering abuse and police brutality. It's been going on for a long time and it, it, it needs to stop. Right. Absolutely. Grateful for the conversation. Well, I feel like, so the next question, if you can answer this, you'll, your next step is to run for president, but the, <laughs> <laughs> you recently had success with uh, Savannah's Act and the Not Invisible Act, which you talked about briefly, uh, bipartisan bills that were signed by the president. <clears throat> Why do you think this effort was successful? And what do you think, <laughs> here's the big one, what do you think needs to happen for Congress to move past party politics and forward on so many critical issues facing our country right now? So, um, you know, there's a lot of bipartisanship when it comes to Indian tribes. In fact, in the House, we have a 
uh, our Native American caucus. It's bipartisan, and I am a co-chair along with Tom Cole, who is a Republican from Oklahoma, Native American from the Chickasaw Nation. Our two vice chairs are Sharice Davids from Kansas, a Democrat, and Mark Wayne Mullen, a Cherokee, from also from Oklahoma. So, um, so we can agree on things, and um, yes, we should agree on more. Right. Uh, you know, I I feel very confident that I can, you know, that I can. I I am one of the highest rated freshmen for bipartisanship in the House. I have more Republicans who have signed on to my the bills that I've introduced, and um, and so I think that's a good thing. I'm a proud progressive. Uh, I don't, you know, I think you can still reach across the aisle as a progressive. I think you can find common ground. I'll continue to do that. Mm -hmm. I will absolutely continue to reach across the aisle um, on other issues. And the environment is a good example. Right. Um, my, my bill to protect Chaco Canyon was bipartisan. It got passed out of the house. And so I think it's up to all of us, right, to, mm -hmm. to find that common ground to work with uh, folks from across the aisle to find solutions for our communities. And you don't have to sacrifice your values to do that. Right. Uh, sure, we're never gonna agree on some things. In fact, there's a fight going on um, right now in the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, because we don't think, um, I mean, if they're gonna rush something through, I think it needs to be a stimulus package, not a scope. <laughs> justice right right um, but uh, but nonetheless um, yes uh, my I guess the question was how do we how do we do that in the future it's just we we reach out and we ask right right and probably some of the responsibility is on we the voters too is to recognize things it's not a binary choice and get in you know, there's nuance to these issues and um, so I, I hope that maybe that's what, what will happen moving forward, that we've all engaged now, we're, we're learning more, we're educating ourselves, and, and we can empower our representatives to make the changes that need to, that need to come about. Mm -hmm. so thank you. We understand there are many issues that need to be addressed. Can you identify one that is impacting your district specifically and that you will make a priority if reelected? Um, my district specifically, there's so many. I mean, healthcare is always going to be a big issue for me, right? Especially, um, I mean, look, yes, I, I have, I've supported Medicare for all. I think everyone should go see a doctor when they're sick. Um, <laughs> I realize that there's a lot of Democrats who don't feel like I do. Uh, that's okay. I just want to protect healthcare. So, um, so I, I will absolutely, I wanna to fight to make sure that the Affordable Care Act isn't going anywhere. Um, in New Mexico, we have, uh, you know, uh, we have a large number of working families who are Medicaid eligible. And I wanna make sure that that's, you know, that program is there uh, for them. And so I will continue to work on healthcare as well as the other things that are, have been my priorities, missing and murdered indigenous women and issues with the environment and renewable energy. So we, we're, we didn't wanna take up too much of your time, but we wanted to end by with the election just 21 days away. And I wish now, sad that we're on a podcast because your necklace is great. She has this beautiful vote necklace. <laughs> um, but with just 
the election being just 21 days away, we wanted to give you an opportunity. What's your message to voters everywhere? Well, I mean, get get out and vote. There are so many ways for people to vote. You can, I say so many, it's either in person or mail in, right? Um, but I, I ordered my ballot and I have my ballot here and I'm going to, um, uh, I got it in the mail, but I'm going to fill it out and then I'm gonna drop it off at a voting location. Um, you know, when I think about it, Native Americans in New Mexico, they didn't have a right to vote until 1948. Wow. In some other states, it was, you know, 1965 or 62. Um, and remember, uh, during um, the last election, 2018, um, there were folks in, was it 2018 or 2016? I feel like they all- They're running together. <laughs> The last four years, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think about um, the Native folks in North Dakota who's, you know, the Republican- Oh, yeah, it was. It was 2018. Right, tried to franchise yes. every single Native American in North Dakota. Our right to vote is precious. John Lewis, my God rest his soul, my colleague who I miss dearly, fought for that. He, you know, he got his skull cracked um, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, when they were saying, we are, we are protesting for black people's right to vote. Um, this has been an ongoing struggle and people have sacrificed. Women have sat, women were beaten right. and jailed, right? Imprisoned uh, for demanding uh, that women have the right to vote. So uh, if you're a woman, if you're anything but a, a white male, uh, you somebody struggled so that you could vote. Right. Right. Um, I was. Pre let me just say this real quick. I was present at a. It was a Martin Luther King Jr. Um, event. Uh, I was in Santa Monica, California, and uh, the president of the NAACP of. California or Los Angeles was there and she had everyone stand up. Sit down if you're a woman, sit down if you're not Christian, sit down if you're not white, sit down if you're, and by the time she went through this whole list of people who couldn't vote, there were two white males left standing in the entire room of about 200 people. Wow. And wow. she, it was very stark. These were the people who were making decisions for you. Right. And, um, and so somebody sacrificed so that you could have the right to vote. And I think you owe it to your, to your ancestors or your parents or your grandparents or somebody who struggled or the women, you know, the women who, um, who were jailed and beaten. Right. Um, so think about someone else. If you're feeling kind of like, eh, I don't want to vote. Um, get out of yourself for a minute and think about the people who struggled so that you could have that right and uh, and vote. Right. That, it is so important. All right. Well, thank you so much, Representative Holland, for agreeing to talk with us. We're huge fans of your trailblazing career and wish you stamina and all good things in these last few weeks. Thank you so much thank and take you. care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Girl Talk Live. Please join our email list at iVoteLikeAGirl.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook.
You don't want to miss out on our next great conversation.